you know, I think we are all so susceptible to chasing the top line, right? Yes. And and oh, I got to raise that round, and I got to get that investor. I've got to bring on the angel to do, you know, whatever, because that's going to get me to a million in sales or five million, so whatever. And I just, I, 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 I would encourage folks to think about revenue as vanity and value yes. as sanity, right? Yeah. Um, I interviewed a different guy named Rob Walling who built a little company called Drip. They were in the email automation space, competing with like AWeber and Mailchimp and those guys. Built it up very slowly to two million dollars of annual revenue. Right. Yet he was entertaining offers in the kind of nine to twelve times top line. Wow. For two million dollar business, like life changing money, more money than you would ever know what to do Every with. Use. Rest exactly. Of life, right. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders, I really have an amazing uh, entrepreneur on the uh, the podcast today. Uh, John Warlow just, just come out with uh, uh, another book, his third book, uh, a trilogy, The Art of Selling Your Business. He's also wrote Built to Sell and The Automatic Customer. He's got a podcast called Built to Sell Radio. And uh, we're friends, uh, associates from the strategic coach and, uh, entrepreneurs organization. Um, I actually facilitated training John was in years ago and, and I, I was, I was listening to built to sell radio came across my feed and, and just listening to John so knowledgeable, so, uh, interesting, uh, and very interested and just, just, uh, really, really compelling entrepreneurial leader. And so we talked about you know, first of all, the best type of business is to get started, you know, when to get started in, in, as an entrepreneurial, as a young person, when's the best time to get started? How might you look to exit, you know, looking at exiting from your business and, and really, you know, how should I think about being an entrepreneur? And he, and he describes how being a parent and looking at you being the parent of your business rather than being the CEO of your business as being the best framework. You are going to love this uh, podcast. Again, just really, really fortunate. I know John and John was willing to come on and provide value to our leaders. So you know what I'm up to. We are in the middle of recruiting season. Uh, we've returned more operators than ever before. We're in the process of recruiting all sorts of referrals to our business. So I would love if you knew someone to shoot them this podcast, to share our website, studentworks.com, or you're welcome to send me any referrals at cthompson at studentworks.com. I hope you love the podcast. I hope you love all the work we're doing and providing value for you. Thanks so much. Have an unbelievable day. John, really, really excited that you're joining us on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. You must be still swimming. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, I kind of partially tore my shoulder. Uh, okay. And then, so I, so I don't swim, but I work out a lot. I bought it. Well, I have a few Pelotons. I, lo- I love to be active. So hundred percent. I'm, 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 you. I'm addicted to uh, whatever it is you're addicted to. I can't remember the name. Uh, endorphins. So for sure. Endorphins. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, That's I remember right. when you did our EO training guy 20 years ago. Now uh, you, you shared some stories about your swimming career, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really great. And one of the coolest things I love about, and it's hard, I know we've got a younger group of leaders here listening mm-hmm. and John and I've had the opportunity. We, we did entrepreneurs organization. We did strategic coach, uh, or similarly. And it really is funny how I just feel like I've, once you know, someone, you know them. And it's like, yeah. boom, it's like, we're just speaking like we hadn't spoke a couple of years ago, but it's been probably 20 or 15 yeah, for sure. Exactly. So, so it just, exactly. it just picks up. So it's, a, and and that's always a great thing for our leaders to remember, you know, it, it really does matter how you treat people all the time. It really does matter, you know, and again, it's like, it's being of interest, being interested in each other, supporting each other, that sort of thing. It's really because by the way, John's a big deal. And I asked him to come onto this podcast and it was a real fast response and I absolutely have th- thank you. So, so thank you, John, for, for coming on. Oh, thanks, man. I, it's funny. You talk about interested and, and versus interesting. I'm talking to my kids about that all the time because mm-hmm. of course the, the world we're living in now is so focused on being interesting, right? Yes. It's how many likes, how many yes. forwards, how many, you know, retweets and, it is part of the currency of being an individual, I think, today is to have social currency, right? Like have yes. a social following. Yeah. Yet it's so ugly in in so many ways that I, I, I it's such a conf, it's conflicting for me personally because I feel yes. like, you know, walking around and and judging yourself worth based on how many people have liked your stuff. Yeah. Is so so hollow. Yeah. And we're creating an entire generation of people who want to be interesting, not interested. And I yeah. think personally, the entrepreneurs that I've been, I've been really impacted by are the ones who ask deep questions and they're just innately curious. And it's funny, yeah. the more successful you go, the more curious they are. I'm sure yeah. you've seen this in the people totally. you've interviewed. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the guys, I won't share his name because he wouldn't want me to share it publicly, but, but he sold his company more than a hundred million dollars. Yeah. I got to know him really, really well. And like to try to get a word in edgewise with the guy was almost impossible because he's just, he's just littering you with questions about anything, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> What is your workout routine? What's your business do? How do you deal with this with your kid? I mean, just like question after question. I'm like, dude, you have no reason to be asking me anything, right? Like, <laughs> you are that's a success right. beyond any measure. Yeah. But that's, I think, one of the common killer apps is curiosity as opposed to this kind of fascination with being interesting. Yeah. And spectacularism here. I'm really spectacular, right? Mm. Rather than being really thoughtful and in the moment and, and leaders, one of the things that I did was, was, uh, just, I guess, across my LinkedIn, I, I got connected to your podcast and I just Mm. started listening to you and a number of you. And again, that's, that's what's happening on your podcast about how do you build a business to sell? And I know we've got all sorts of leaders, young entrepreneurs on uh, listening here. And uh, I think you're the best in the game at that. And I'm I'm really excited. But before we go there, we're going to start with, 
you know, university. Who were you? What were you concerned with? What were you frustrated with? Uh, et cetera. Oh, man. How did you know I didn't like university? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I went to I went to Queens. I hated it. It was a bunch of socialists. It's a terrible school. I think if you go to Queens Commerce, it's it's a decent school. I think if you go right. to Queens Engineering, it's a decent school. If you go and study arts, it is at least it was in my day a horrible place. And so I I left early. I was frustrated okay. with the entire experience. I didn't like it. I didn't. I mean, like. I met some good folks there, but yeah. the but the environment was just so totally not who like I wanted to be around, and yeah. so I left. And uh, yeah, that's how I like school. I didn't. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so 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 you made a powerful decision to leave. Um, yeah. And and so where 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 did you go to? What did you, what were you moving towards? John? <laughs> yeah, I I went to like I couldn't get a job. Obviously, I'd left school early, so I wasn't exactly marketable. Right. <laughs> so I went to. <laughs> Apply for a job at a company called Telemedia, which no longer exists, but it used to be a magazine publishing company, a radio publishing company, yeah. or radio stations. And they said, no, no, you, <laughs> they kind of laughed and said, no, you're not going to be, you're not going to get a job in Toronto, right? Because right. the media world works, you, you go to the small towns, right? Yes. And they said, you can go be the promotions coordinator in Sudbury, Ontario for a AM country music radio station. So if you want to talk about starting at the bottom of the barrel, that's, that's, that's where, it. that's where it is right there. 790 CIGM. So I, uh, I went there and I packed up my little Honda Civic and off I went to live in Sudbury where I knew nobody and, right. uh, met lots of friends and had a good time. Well, yeah, a lot of really great people in Sudbury. So, oh, so, you, sure. so, so you got, you got started in Sudbury. And so, so describe that process. So. I get to the radio station and the the company was was kind enough to to give me a one night stay at a hotel. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you get a job at a fancy yeah. company, they'll they'll put you up for an extended stay for a month or two. They gave me one night. I think it was like a hundred dollar <laughs> stipend. Yeah. So I was at like the days in for one night and then I had to find somewhere to live. So I found a place and it was advertising rooms for like $79 a week. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty good deal. So I got a room for the week. And I remember it was pretty Spartan, as you can imagine. Yes. And I got in late uh, from being at the station all day and I went to sleep in the middle of the night. I had to pee. So I got up, go to pee and be su- in, in the bathroom is another guy who is also having to take a pee. And I'm like, what is this? And it turns out I've rented a, like basically a rooming house that shares a bathroom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I left and I packed up and I went back to the radio station and I just was hanging out in the overnight DJ's like booth, uh, not on the air, but just talking to him saying, I can't go back to that place. I've been ever forever scarred seeing this guy. And he said, why don't you go back to my place? So I lived with him for a while and that's, uh, uh, you know, I was involved in promotions and then I got into sales, which I liked. And uh, and then I pitched an idea for a show. I, I was fascinated by entrepreneurship, just like you. Yeah. And uh, I pitched the idea for a show about entrepreneurs where I would ask them like what they did. And if and it really was based on the one simple question, if you'd known now what you know, what if you'd known then what you know now, what would you do differently? And that was the premise of the show. And I said, hey, what do you think? You know, do you, you want to put it on the air? And everybody said, no, it'll never work. And so <laughs> I ultimately left 
the station and uh, started a company uh, to produce that show. And wow. uh, I got it on the air at uh, CFRB in Toronto, 1010. And okay. then it got picked up nationally and nationally syndicated show called Today's Entrepreneur. Okay. And I interviewed a different entrepreneur every day for three years. Uh, wow. And it was it was a short 90 second, like we'd, we'd have a conversation like you and I are having, then yeah. we'd, we'd, we'd kind of shrink it down to a two minute or 90 second bit. And I got the chance to meet and talk to, I mean, these names go back years, but like John Sleeman, the guy who yeah. started the beer company, the guy who started Second Cup, whose name escapes from Frank O'Day. Um, gosh, all these Canadian entrepreneurs, Ron Foxcroft, wow. the guy behind the Fox 40 whistle. It was just yeah. an indoctrination into all these stories and and, and it was so cool because I asked them every time, like, okay, what would you do differently if you'd known now? Like, if you were like me as a 22 year old yeah. or whatever I was at the time, like, like what would you do differently? And, and it was a great uh, learning for me personally about, about the world of entrepreneurship. What a fantastic opportunity, right? That was cool. So were you making notes? Were you learning? Were you, were you sort no, of thinking sure. of, and thinking about that next idea? So, oh, so yeah. and were you able to sell that idea or did it just stop or what? what yeah. What, yeah. No, we sold it. Uh, yeah. We sold it eventually to uh, the station. Oh gosh. I can't remember the name of the company. Uh, Standard broadcasting owned a syndication okay, company, yes. which we sold it to. And then um, I went on to do some other stuff, other businesses. I had a, a, a research company and um, an events business. So yeah. And uh, kind of parlayed some of that uh, that knowledge, I guess, that I'd learned from those other entrepreneurs is, uh, into, uh, into other endeavors. The one thing I, I never did was raise money. I know that a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this probably are on that, you know, thinking about, should I bootstrap this, keep right. kind of growing from cash flow, or, or do I raise money? And, and I was always... Uh, really focused on independence and and didn't want the sort of oversight of of shareholders or investors or a board or whatever. So, I I bootstrapped everything that that I did. Which so, so those companies were service businesses in the early days, right? And, and so, you know, if you know if you knew now what you knew then, what would you do differently? <laughs> uh, yeah, so much. Well, first of all, I wouldn't study. I would study business. I wouldn't yeah. study arts. I, uh, that I was the same mistake. thing. Yeah. On my on my end, I think uh, that was a huge mistake. I think, you know, mistake. It's not really regret because I think if I'd gone to study business, I'd be working at Procter Gamble or, or some company like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, so many lessons. I don't know that I could distill it down to one, Chris. I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, again, I. I I made all kinds of mistakes. I mean, like right. every mistake you could possibly make I've made, but I guess part of that journey is making mistakes. Right. I, I think that, that, uh, I mean, I, I, I had this idea for an audio magazine. So, you know, like a, a printed magazine where you get yeah. a new issue every month or whatever. I had this idea for an audio magazine where I was going to bundle up these, interviews that I was doing for this radio show and sell it as a kind of a tape series. This goes back yeah. to years ago before, even before CDs, if you can imagine. And I mean, it was like the most harebrained idea because the cost of acquiring a subscriber would be like thousands of dollars. And I right. invested, I, I had to kind of like, if you build it, they will come uh, feel the dreams kind of marketing plan. And it yeah. was, you know, clearly totally, I, mean, I think back now and I think what a foolish mistake. But now I think when yeah, we're launching a new product, 
right now in, in my current business. And, and I think, yeah, yeah, product's nice, but like, what's the cost of acquisition? Like, what's the, you know, the, there's an acronym called CAC or customer yes. acquisition cost, but like, what does it cost you to win a subscriber? And that's really like, it all starts there, right? Uh, yes. Every, you know, virtually every business, uh, you can sell something to somebody, but it's just like at what cost? And uh, and so CAC is, it's still in my brain 20 years later. Is all, is all the time. And so, so one of the things that in listening to your podcast and reading your books, one of the biggest things is really looking at businesses that you can turn into a subscription model. And yeah. I have a friend who, again, not sure he'd like to be bragged about, so I won't, but I'll brag about my friend who turned a, a business where he basically had the, he would view into his business maybe every month. And he was running a successful, profitable business Correct. and going, this is really stressful. And then he turned it into a monthly revenue stream where clients would come and, and, and buy. And now he's got like people, you know, for years and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's tripled in value or sorry, tripled in revenue, but value has gone way up. Like people just buy and it's just, they stay and it's, and so. Why don't you talk about that model, matter, that model, and share about it, et cetera, about about the advantages, et cetera? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, most businesses are transactional, meaning the customer you market the service or product, customer learns about it, you sell them, and then you build them, basically. Yes. Yeah, and that's a transaction. That's the way most. Uh, businesses work. The subscription business is slightly different in that you effectively make an agreement with a customer to build them on a regular cadence. Depending yes. on the nature of the contract, they may or may not have the rights to cancel that. But effectively, you know, we've all bought cell phones and gym memberships and you know all kinds of different recurring revenue models. A lot of businesses though feel like they're hamstrung and that's and, and they say well that's just not the way my industry works right yes. like if you knew my industry john you wouldn't be talking about subscription models because that's just not the way we work i'm a manufacturing company we're a distribution company we're a service business we're a retail business and what i usually tell them is the h bloom story because i think it's it's really illustrative of the kind of creativity you need to create a recurring revenue model and there's and there's one strategy that i think is critical that most people miss so let me first i'll tell you the h bloom story and then Please. i'll tell you what the strategy is so the h bloom started by these two young entrepreneurs out of new york called sonyu panda and brian burkhart and they were looking at ideas. I think it was an MBA or maybe undergrad. They were looking at business ideas and they thought, you know, this business of selling flowers could be really disrupted, right? Like if you think about flowers, it's a crappy business model, right? The farmer cuts the flower off the stem, like it immediately starts dying, right? The flower store yeah. takes it into the refrigerator. Two, three weeks later, it's going brown. A month later, they got to throw it out because the inventory is dead. So a typical flower store will throw out half of its inventory, 60% wow. of its inventory, in fact, more than half every single month. So that's number one. Number two, huge seasonality, right? Um, you know, Mother's Day and Valentine's Day is when people buy flowers. 30% or more of flowers are bought on those two holidays, wow. which leaves you the rest of the 363 days of the year. Like you're trying to stimulate demand. You do that by getting really expensive real estate, right? So you intercept someone as they're walking by in a concourse of a bank tower, which nobody here in these days. I mean, it's just, a, yes. it's a crappy business. And so along come these two guys, Burkhardt and Pan, and they said, "What we're going to get in the business of selling flowers, but we're going to do it on subscription. And they looked and said, okay, well, who needs to buy flowers regularly? 
And, you know, again, the reason we buy flowers, weddings, funerals, uh, graduation, Mother's Day, except none of them really lent themselves to subscription. There's one, however, type of customer that buys flowers regularly, and that is five-star hotels. Huh. Because five-star hotels want to give their clientele the, the kind of image of a very boutique, splendid sort of experience, right? So you go to the, the Westin or the Four Saint seasons. Regis or the, yes, you know, the Four exactly. Seasons, you yeah. walk in and there's this beautiful bouquet of flowers. Well, somebody had to deliver those flowers. And increasingly, it's a company called H. Bloom, because that's what Sonia Panda and Brian Burkhardt started. They started a flower company that would sell flowers on subscription to hotels. Right. The typical spoilage rate of H. Bloom flowers, like the number of the percentage of their inventory they have to throw it every year is less than 2%. Wow. Because they only buy flowers for the customers they need to fulfill, right? They're yeah. not buying it on spec. Yeah. They've gotten rid of all the seasonality out of the, the, the flower business. And today, the average transaction in a flower store is around 50 bucks. So you get 50 bucks, but then you got to go run around, stimulate demand and try to get another guy to spend 50 bucks. Typical H. Bloom subscriber spends more than $4,500 one sale, capture $4,500 worth of value. And that changes the economics of selling flowers. And that's why Burkhart and Panda hired salespeople. They hired young people right out of school, gave them a card, a credit card. And a, you know they could afford to do that because they knew that if they sold one hotel, they would capture $4,500. Totally changes the economics of the business. Here's the secret to changing a transaction business model into recurring. You've got to first start by segmenting your customer base because yeah. not everybody who buys from you is going to need what you sell regularly. Right. right. So you've got to bucket everybody. That's what they did. They didn't say, let's build a subscription model for everybody who wants flowers. Cause by definition, they would have diluted it down right. to some crappy, kind of totally not interesting subscription. But they said, well, no, we've got the, you know, we've got the graduation people here. We got the funeral people here. We got the wedding people here. We got the Mother's Day people here. And then we've got these, these, these hotels. And right. they probably spend, it's probably less than 2% of all revenue that's bought or all sales of flowers are bought by hotels. But it was enough to build a company around. And that's wow. the secret. Don't try to create your subscription model based on all the people that would have a possible need for what you sell. Instead, bucket based on buying need and then identify a segment that has, has a, that has a recurring need. I think you'll find that that's a lot easier way to do it. Really cool. And and um and your podcast has a bunch of other ideas because most of the most of the ideas on your build to sell radio is is that, right? Is people who have, you know, I know one of them was a uh, a dog uh puppies you know, and, and they need yeah. puppy baskets. And, and, and this was really, uh, you know, something that was very subscribable. And then a big company wanted to take it over because that's a real fit for them. So it's, it's, that's right. it's just seeing all these, these opportunities and really thinking about business a lot differently. And frankly, I got to tell you, this is not something that we coach our leaders in our business because we are not running this, this type of a model, but it's really, it's really, really exciting you know what you what you're what you're doing and how you're getting people to think differently about business and the value that the business derives is way higher uh the the, the businesses are worth just so much more on the basis of of having a subscription it, that, that would yeah, be true I mean, right 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it, not for any magical reason other than acquirers pay more for certainty, right? So when an acquirer looks at the value of your company, they know that they're going to write you a check and you're going to ride off into the sunset. And so in order for them to A, write that check and write a big check, a high mm-hmm. multiple, they've got to know that, that revenue is going to you know, continue months, years in the future. And recurring revenue is one of the best ways to demonstrate that. So if you look at um, alarm companies, for example, um, alarms, they have two forms of revenue. They've got installation revenue where they charge you to kind of wire up the system and the, you know, the sensors on the windows and stuff. And then they've got monitoring revenue, right? And that's the 39 or $49 a month you pay to have the police show up. Somebody in the Philippines. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Well, today... Typical acquirer will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and about $3 for every dollar of monitoring revenue. Said another way, every dollar of monitoring revenue is worth kind of like $4 of installation revenue. And you see that, I mean, that's just, that's security companies, but you would see that in virtually every industry that recurring revenue is just so much more valuable than the transactional stuff. Yeah. And so, so John, you know, I, I know, um, I, I remember hearing you talk about uh or maybe reading you talking about the birthing of giants and somebody asked oh, yeah, you, yeah. you know hey so who does who does sales in their business and everybody's hands goes up and then yep. you know so maybe you could share that story and and we could talk about you know what should an entrepreneur be doing in their business yeah yeah sure so uh, I got invited or I, I applied and accepted or whatever they say uh for a program called the birthing of giants like that's couldn't be a more pretentious name, but it basically <laughs> was. A, it's been rebranded since. Called, I think they now call it Entrepreneurial's Master's Program or EMP. Yeah. Uh, it's an EO program. They do it. At least they did on the yeah. kind of executive education facility at at, at MIT. MIT. Beautiful facility, and you know, yeah. like just amazing. And they had you know this beautiful amphitheater, sixty of us in the room. And uh, we got to hear from some of the real big thinkers. I think Jack Stack talked about employee ownership. Uh, Pat Lynchoni, the guy behind the five dysfunctions of a team and all that stuff, leadership stuff. I mean, some really high level speakers. And on one of the last days, this guy named Stephen Watkins walked in. I'd never heard of him. And I almost left. Here's the story. I almost did not go because I had become a little bit uh, jaded about the kind of Pollyanna rags to riches story that is so many sort of fake stories about entrepreneurship, like the cover of Inc. Magazine. It, yeah. it, it's always like, oh, it was really easy for us. And like, like you know, we, we got to 10 million in revenue, like super fast. Like, I was just really tired of it because I was at the time running a company and I and it wasn't going really well, particularly well. And so I was yeah. just, I was grinding yeah. and felt like I was just not in the mood to hear some other asshole talk about how wonderful their story is, right? <laughs> how he, he was, you know, a, a giant. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. That. I yeah. wanted to hear the, the tactical information. Like I want to know, you know, how do I, you know, hire a salesperson? You know, how do I, you know, sign a commercial? I don't want to. Anyway, so he walks in and I did go to the session and I'm really glad I did. I was sitting at the top of this amphitheater, I remember. And he, (laughs) he started off by saying, all right, how many of you folks are involved in selling your product and service. And like every one of our hands went up in the air as, you know, as if we were kind of like, it was a badge of honor, right? Like exactly. proud of yeah. that, right? Like, yeah, damn right. I'm like number one sales guy or gal for my company, right? Yeah. And, and we were proud of that. And he said, all right, well, put your hands down. He said, here's the thing. You all have the right skills 
you're selling the wrong product. Yeah. And we're like, okay, what are you talking about? He's like, you need to hire salespeople to hire to sell your product or your service. Your job is to sell your company. Right. And he was getting to, he wasn't suggesting we all go you know, put our companies on the market, but he was saying that the job of the entrepreneur is to increase the value of their company, is to put all of their energies, their sales and marketing and, and influence and their ability to communicate into building the reputation and value of their company. Yeah. And so many of us make the mistake of selling our product or our service. And I remember, you know, it's funny, we talked about sports before and swimming and it was like for the first time in my life, I, you know, I played baseball all the way through and all of a sudden I just had a momentary glimpse at what actual professional baseball feels like and looks oh, like and yeah. realized I'd been playing like a complete, you know, rookie game, right? It was yeah. one of those moments where I thought I understood entrepreneurship and, and here was this guy who walked in and basically said, like, everything you know, you think you know about entrepreneurship is wrong. This is the job of the real entrepreneur. And I remember just leaving there thinking I was totally rocked by that you know, presentation. Yeah. And again, this goes back 20 years. It's a long yeah. time ago, but I remember it to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so it's kind of the working on your business, not in your business. The Michael space. Gerber expression. Yeah. That's yes. the old Michael Gerber expression. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of, you know, you, you can hire people to do the work. Uh, you should hire people to do the work, but the, 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 the real entrepreneur works on their business, you know, thinking about how do we create it? One of the things that 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 I spent a, a lot of time thinking about is this analogy of being your business's parent as opposed to your business's CEO. Uh -huh. And and perhaps a lot of people listening to this have have, you know, they've they've just left, maybe they've left the 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 cozy confines of their parents' house uh, yes, for the first yes. time they're living on their own or or you know, whatever. And they have probably gone through this transition where their parents have gone from, you know, caring for their every need, right. As yeah. children yeah. to that adolescent period between like 14 and 20, where you're kind of still a bit of a kid, you still need a bit of direction, but at the same time, you're, you're bridling under the, the kind of, you know, you want your independence. Right. Yeah. And then, and then you become independent and you're on your own. And most parents, I think if they're honest with themselves would, would, would feel like they had been successful parents if if they would were successful in bringing their kids out into the world where they could function independently yes. right and 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 make their own decisions and succeed on their own terms and i think for most parents that's our greatest aspiration yes. at least for me and, and my wife so i think if you take that view of building a business then instead of chasing I want to get to a million in sales or I want to get yes. to 10 employees or whatever. The, the classic milestones that we all sort of think are the kind of badge of honor. Yeah. Instead of using those as our primary goal, I think it's worth saying, I actually just want to bring life into the world. Right. I want to bring a company into the world that one day, not necessarily today, but one day could live without me. Yeah. And I think that's the expression, the ultimate expression of creativity, which we all crave, I think, as entrepreneurs, there isn't a creative vein that that runs sure. through everything that we do. Yes. And and that that's the creative expression is to, is to bring a child, in this case, a, a business into the world. And eventually over time, yeah. if it can succeed without you, I think you can tick the box saying, I've been successful as an entrepreneur. Whether you sell it or not is somewhat irrelevant. If it can thrive without you, it's a sellable company. For right. Sure. Uh, yeah. But you know, whether you choose to sell it or not is somewhat secondary. 
Right. Because you could choose to be the owner. You're completely separate and it's sending you dividends and profit so that, yeah. you know, John's checked out of this and this runs completely without John. And clearly that's, exactly that's what, right. that's how you're running your business. And that's how you're teaching or, 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 you know, assisting entrepreneurs to think, think differently, right? Like think, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the idea is, is ultimately that is the ultimate success, at least in, in my world. Look, yeah. again, the forces running against this are strong and powerful. If you pick up a copy of Inc. Magazine or you open a web browser and go to any sort of entrepreneurial website, it celebrates this, this sort of Silicon Valley concept of entrepreneurship, right? It celebrates, you know, the founder, entrepreneur, is, also as well, the person, right? It's the companies attached to the person the as well. The cult of personality is, yes. is a big deal. And, and, and again, I think that it, it, is, it is such a dangerous, slippery slope. I interviewed on Built Cell Radio a guy named Rand Fishkin. Mm. And Rand wrote a wonderful book called Lost and Founder. And it would be certainly worth linking to and a good book for any, anyone listening to this getting it. But he built a great little company called Moz. Moz uh, was an SEO, helped with SEO, search engine optimization, a little software company, built it up to $5 million in revenue. Yeah. And software companies are in a, in a unique space and they get a high valuation. And so he was under the impression from some advisors that told him that he could probably get four times revenue for his business. And this business was on a on a really steep trajectory. It was kind of going from five, he thought he could get it to 10. And so in his mind, he's like, if we get to 10 and I get four times top line, that's $40 wow. million. He's a young guy at this time, right? For sure. And so that's the number he's got in his head. Along comes a guy named Brian Halligan. Brian Halligan is the co-founder of HubSpot. Yes. And Halligan says to Fishkin, man, you built this great company. We'll give you $25 million of cash and HubSpot stock. So think about it. That's a five times top line revenue number where he is no at kidding. that point, right? It's five million. It's a big number. But again, Rand's got this 40 in his head. And so he turns Halligan down and wow. says, you know what? I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep chasing the top line, right? And so in order to do that, he brought in some venture capital. I think he raised like 15 or $16 million, like a big, round, oh, wow. like a huge amount of money. And they went out and started to invest in other products, right? Beyond just SEO, right? To build out this entire marketing platform. But the problem was Rand didn't really have a unique point of differentiation in all those products, didn't really have the, the sort of management team in place. And so those products started to fail. Yeah. And the company started to bleed cash. And the VCs had the rights to remove Rand as the CEO, which they did. And I I interviewed Rand after the fact and I said, like, at least, you know, at least you've still got some Moz stock. I mean, that must be worth a truckload now. And he said, actually, John, it's, it's probably not worth anything. And I said, what do you mean it's not worth anything? He said, well, based on the way the VCs invest, they invest and they get preferred shares with a yeah. guaranteed coupon, meaning the longer they hold the shares, the longer that coupon accumulates, the, the rate of return, basically. Yeah. And... Therefore, when they sell it, they get paid first and you're yes. at the back of the line. And yes. if there's anything left over, your founder shares may be worth something. And he says, yeah, like, I don't think it's, I think I'm washed Why? out completely. And I said, I said, but Rand, what would that, what would that offer from HubSpot be worth today based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock, et cetera? He said, it would be worth close to $200 million. 
Wow. And, and I tell that story because, you know, I think we are all so susceptible to chasing the top line. Right. Yes. And, and, oh, I got to raise that round and I got to get that investor. I've got to bring on the angel to do, you know, whatever, because that's going to get me to a million in sales or five million, sales, whatever. And I just, I, 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 I would encourage folks to think about revenue as vanity and value yes. as sanity. Right. Yeah. Um, I interviewed a different guy named Rob Walling who built a little company called Drip. They were in the email automation space, competed with like AWeber and MailChimp and those guys. Built it up very slowly to $2 million of annual revenue. Right. Yet he was entertaining offers in the kind of nine to 12 times top line. Wow. For $2 million business. Like life-changing money, more money than you would ever know what to do. Every with exactly. Money, right? Um, for $2 million business. Incredible. Chasing revenue, I think, is a really slippery slope and a dangerous one as opposed to changing value. Like what, what is going to make this business valuable? It's being able to operate so that you personally don't need to do the work. Having recurring revenue so that there's a, a tail to it. Having a point of differentiation. All these things go into building a valuable company as opposed to just a big company. Yeah. One of the things that's always occurred to me, um, and I guess, you know, I know people who buy businesses. I know uh, obviously more entrepreneurs, but I know people who buy businesses. And it seems mm -hmm. like the people who buy businesses has a, have a big advantage over entrepreneurs because they buy many businesses. They're in a lot of transactions and they've, they, they win the experience game. You know, we're pretty good at, well, I, I was thinking, gosh, you've been podcasting for decades. So, uh, so, so no wonder you're so good. So, uh, but, but, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm, I, I, you know, Hey, reps, reps, reps help. And then all of a sudden you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to sell the one business you've run forever. And, you know, it's like, you really don't have a clue, right? Like that, yeah. that's, that's kind of what I think. I I agree wholeheartedly. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. I've used the analogy of of Sully Sullenberger. Remember the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson yes. River? Yeah, done everything there is to do in an airplane, right? Like was a twenty or forty year veteran, and yet had never landed a plane on the Hudson River. Had one chance to grease the landing, right? Yeah. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's they're they're Sully, right? Yeah. They. They could they could tell you all day long about how to run a marketing plan, how to negotiate a lease, how to fire an yeah. employer, how to hire employee, all that stuff. Yeah. They do it every day. Yeah. The one thing they don't get a chance to do a lot is sell. And on the other side of the negotiation table is likely one of two individuals right now, either a private equity group yeah. or a corporate development executive for a big company. Both of those individuals make their living buying companies. That's what they do all, all day long, right? Yeah. And so there is a huge mismatch. You know, classic mistake, you know, one of the classic unforced errors that many of us make is, is that one of the private equity groups will try to get your number out of you, right? They'll say, Chris, you've been running this thing for years. Like, you ever thought about selling? You say, yeah, I mean, maybe for the right price. And they say, well, what's the price? What's the number? Yeah. And, and you kind of you're all of a sudden on the spot. I remember I, I did an interview for Built to Sell Radio with a guy named Chris Jones, built a great little company called Pepper Jam. And he got he got wooed into a meeting with a guy named Michael Rubin. He'd sold a company, you know, unicorn guy. And, and he thought he was going to a meeting one-on-one -on -one with Rubin. But as he walks into Rubin's office, he's not alone. He's got his chief financial officer and head legal counsel flanked over yeah. each shoulder, right? And Ruben, before even like kind of exchanging pleasantries, says to Chris, this young guy, all right, what do you want for pepper chip? Right. And Chris is like backpedaling, thinking, oh, like, what? I thought I was coming here for like a conversation. And you're all of a sudden, he's like, what do you want for your company? Yeah. And 
And he kind of blurted out his number. And instead of really negotiating or having a reaction to it directly to Chris, Michael turned to his CFO and said, okay, I think we can get a deal done. Meaning don't pay a penny more than the number he just said. Yes, exactly. Because right? yeah. that's effectively what happens. And I talked to Chris. He's gone on to have some great businesses and yeah. you know, he doesn't, yeah, he's fine. It's all but fine. I talked yeah. To, yeah, yeah. I talked to him after and I said like, well, you know, if you had it to do over and he's yeah, he's like, I probably wouldn't say the number. Yes. And, and, and so some people say, okay, so you can put a ceiling on your business. If you put too low a number, well, then I'm just going to put a crazy number out there. Right. Yes. Here's the problem with that. Buyers will look at you and they'll think, well, that guy's completely ridiculous. There's no exactly. point in even engaging in a conversation because he's got such ridiculous, I can, you know, my time is better spent elsewhere. Yes. And so before you have a chance to romance them about all the things you do and how wonderful your company is, they're gone. Yes. And so there's just no way every buyer is going to ask that question, but there's no answer that, that, that benefits you at that point. So you've just got to defer. You've got to, you've got to say, Hey, really appreciate you're interested. I'm a reasonable personal happy to entertain any reasonable offer you think is fair. Right. Right. Leave it at that. And so, so what would you recommend when someone's selling, you're recommending going to someone you're recommending getting, getting advice or how, how does, how does, what, what's your thought about that, John? Yeah, we we both know Dan Sullivan, strategic coach. He just he has just written a great book called Who Not How. And his yes. premise for the book, have you had yeah. Dan to talk about I the book? Or you- no, oh gosh, it'd be great to get Dan. Yeah, what a, what an awesome opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Who Not How is the book. I think Ben Hardy is the co-author. Yeah. His premise is most entrepreneurs think of problems as how problems. How yes. am I going to write a marketing plan? How am I going to win a new customer? How am I going to get some million in sales? Whatever. And his redirect is the the smartest entrepreneurs think of things as who problems, right. not how problems. And his main premise is that there's someone out there who is much better suited to solve that problem for you. Your job is to find that person right. who can help you hit a million in sales, help you write that marketing plan, et cetera. And so for that, you know, to extend that into the into the realm of selling your business, I don't think selling your business is something you should do on your own. Most people yeah. wouldn't sell their house or their condo without representation, and I so I think having an M and A professional is a really really important step. So there's a there's there's these people called M and A mergers and acquisition professionals that sell kind of generally larger businesses, usually more than ten million dollars in value, and then there are business brokers who sell companies usually less than ten or five million dollars in value. And I think you need one. I, I right. really do think that's not what I do, by the way, for a living. So I'm not saying it in a self-serving yes. way. Uh, here's my business card. No, it's it, I just think that that's what you want because. Um, it's a who problem and, and, and what you want is somebody who can, who can run a professional process. I'll give you another example. Actually, another EO guy, Arik Levy out in Sacramento, California, Arik built two businesses in the locker space, you know, like, um, you know, when you go to Amazon or you go to Whole Foods, you can see the Amazon yeah. lockers. So he did that. But that first one was at uh, laundromats. It's called laundry locker, right? And you can go after hours, get your laundry. He had one offer to buy that business. He decided to sell it on his own, didn't hire a broker, got one offer after kind of peddling it for a few months, decided to that he couldn't get much else going. So he, he agreed to it with a letter of intent. 60 days of due diligence goes by. And at the end of the diligence on closing day, the buyer comes and says, oh, you know, we 
we thought we were going to buy it for X, but now we're actually going to retrade and buy it for 20% less than X, right. which is very common when you don't very have common. another buyer. Yeah. And so Arik kind of throws his hands up in the air and goes like, this is like, we had a deal. Like you agreed to pay X, but now you're saying X minus 20%. And, and so he was frustrated. But by that time, I mean, there's so much water under the bridge. He decided to sell for the lower price only to have the buyer, quote unquote, turn around and said, oh, you know what? Thanks for agreeing to the lower price. We weren't able to raise the money. So now we're going to have to get you to lend us the money. And so Arik became the banker. So he basically sold his business over time to these guys. It was a disaster. So when he sold, he, he built another business, much more successful, larger businesses, installing these locker systems in major apartments in Manhattan and in other buildings after that. It was, it was a good, successful business. And he went to sell and he said, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. He yeah. brought in an M&A professional and the M&A professional, a guy named Trip Wolf based in New York, runs a professional process, right? He looks yeah. out and says, who are the hundred companies that would benefit from buying this? puts a teaser together, does a sim, all there's a process you go through, right? I wrote yeah. about it in, in my latest book. And there's a process you go through that gets the, the right players to the table simultaneously to create an auction. Yes. Trip got five offers for Arik, all of which were plus or minus 10% of each other. Yeah. And instead of just accepting one, Trip then started the negotiation, right? He started to play one offer off the other, off the next. Ultimately, he was able to triple the highest wow. bidder. So yeah. got a 300% lift on the value of his company because he ran a process, because he did it professionally. So again, I'm a big believer. Like Arik made the mistake of trying to do it as on, on his own the first time and then yeah. hired a professional to do it. And the results were totally different. So I'm a yeah. big believer in having, having an intermediary, making it a yeah. who problem, not a how problem. Yeah. And if you're an entrepreneur, um, like John and I, you hear a lot of stories. I won't tell any more about bad scenarios, you know, and getting, <laughs> getting tricked up and you go, oh, now I see why they did this. And I never knew this or, you know, so, so it's just su such a great idea. So what about, um, how did you know running a business was for you, John? I think I just saw how, how I just always felt like I knew better. Okay. Now hindsight, uh, <laughs> being 2020, like I was such a prick an arrogant, you know, uh, know it all right. Like as a 22 year old, how do you, how do you possibly know? You know, like I, I, I'd look at the way the radio station was being run. And I was like, if I was running this thing, it would be different. I would do this and I would do that. And I remember having these like lunches with my colleague and I was like, like, Standing on ceremony, talking about all these things I would do if, Different you know, idea. not under in any way appreciating like the complexity of business, right? Exactly. All the people involved, the rules, yeah. the laws, the even the labor law, all, all these things were, yeah. you know, but at the time I just do different. And, and so I was just a completely unemployable prick. And I think that's just the reality. So yeah, I, I, I knew I would be, I mean, I, I was miserable. Like, I, I think it was sort of like, the world was was saying, all right, like if you think you're so hot, why don't you try it? Right. And right. I promptly fell flat on my face for the first effort. I, I told you about the audio magazine. I mean, it was yeah. a, a complete disaster. So like I was humbled by that, I think. Yeah. Started to and then started to be more, yeah, humble. Uh yeah. So I don't, you know, I joke I, about, you know, earlier in our conversation, I joke about I'm probably working at Procter Gamble. You know, I, I'm so grateful, happy, 
thrilled with my decision to choose entrepreneurship as a career. It's been a bumpy yeah. road. I don't yeah. want to lay it out like it's about better roses, but I'm I'm so grateful for that. And had I not had the bumpy starts, I, I think I would have been like a company guy, right? right. And I think I, I would genuinely not be as fulfilled professionally as I feel today because, you know, I probably, had I been the company guy, like I probably would have like, you know, risen up the company ladder and done sure. all the things they want you to do. And eventually kind of had some job that I was afraid to leave and a mortgage and kids and wife and, oh my gosh, like I can't leave now. And, and yeah. I think, you know, some people say, when should you start a business? Like, and I'm sure Chris, you and I are aligned on this one. Yeah. A lot of people say, oh, I, you know, I, I really want to go work for someone, you know, like make my mistakes on someone else's tab. And, you know, like maybe after five or seven or eight years, then I'm going to start a business. Yeah. BS. BS. Trust me, when you're 30 and you're sitting on a $600,000 mortgage and your spouse is saying, hey, let's have, like, I think we should have kids soon in the next couple of years. Trust me, entrepreneurship will not look as attractive as it is now. And guess what? The first five years are going to suck entrepreneurship, but who cares? You live on your couch, you can figure yeah. it out. Those are the years that you that that you should be skinning your knees, making yeah. the mistakes, figuring it out, right? So that by the time you're 30, you've got a real business on the go, yeah. right? Yeah. And and you can start to pay yourself fairly and you can you can think about family and a mortgage and all jazz. But if you wait till you're 30, good luck. Yeah, I don't think it's going to yeah, corporate handcuffs. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. not only corporate handcuffs, Chris, but just life handcuffs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like again, if you are if you're lucky enough to have a spouse who also has a good job, and you can, you know, I, I hear lots of stories that say, you know, I, I was lucky. Like my spouse worked, you know, he or she was was bringing good money in. So it, that gave me the luxury to start, which yeah. is great. That, yeah. But that's not everybody's situation, right? By and, by no means. And, yeah. Yeah. And so I think. Screw it up when you're 22 and you can go back and put your tail between your legs and go live in your parents' basement for a couple more years. Like yeah. that's when you should be doing it, not when yeah. you're 32. Yeah. The risks, the risks are way less. And you know, and and so what did you need to change about yourself, John? You know, coming out of university. <laughs> should I be getting on a couch right now? Do I need like uh, what did I need to change about myself? I I think uh, humility, right? Like yeah. I think I yes, that's to, yeah, that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's really what I I needed more experience. I needed more humility. I, I was lucky in the sense that I grew up in a household where I was told and and really like you you know it's cliche to even say it now, but the, the kind of you can do anything you want. Yeah. You, you know, you just have to put enough energy into it. So that was a very common sort of vernacular in our house, and I'm grateful for my parents being that way and not saying, well, you should get a really, you know, you should, you should think about accounting because that's a safe draw. Like they didn't do that. Like that yeah. was part of what it was. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, and, but at the same time that does foster a sense of bravado, a sense of, I can do anything I want. Yeah, right? yes, I'm looking at yeah, Muhammad yeah. Ali behind you, right? It's like <laughs> impossible right. is nothing. And that's awesome. And I love yeah. that. I love the fact that you teach your kids that and, and, the, and the people that listen to the show that, and that's awesome. And I think, I think it's, was it, was it Muhammad Ali who said, no, it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody's got a, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. And yeah. then all hell's, you know, then, 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 you know, and I think, I think that's true. I think 
as you grow up and you think you know everything, you will get punched in the mouth. And I got yeah. punched in the mouth, right? And yeah. that's that's okay. That you know, as long as you pick yourself up and and learn learn through it, then you'll live to fight it another day. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because you kind of remind me. We had a great conversation with actually uh, another EOer and uh, uh, birthing a giant, uh, Golden Yairman. He's he's one of our uh, okay. one of our yeah. one of our alumni in our program, and, and he was talking about Giannis, uh, the, the great basketball player. And they're saying, yeah. you know, how do you manage? Everyone's patting you on the back and saying you're so great, you know. And he, he says, well, the past is ego, the future is pride. I'm so proud of myself, and the present is humility. And just yeah. the power of humility, the power of, okay, going to go do another podcast, knocking out of the park. You're going to go, you know, again, be interesting, be interested, sorry, be interested, you know, interested, what, find yeah. out what there is to find out, you know, make a contribution. And again, by the sounds of it, that's something that that's, you know, humility is so powerful. It's just so mm-hmm. powerful. So what about, what about habits? What, 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 what habits do you have, uh, John? That, that you really think, again, you've crafted over the, the decades and are really are really impacting your business and your life? I'm a big early morning guy. I, I know okay. some people are, are, are evening people. I, I'm, I'm sort of the, the kind of 5.30, that, that first okay. hour of the day is a big deal for me. I try to do something important. I'm a big Stephen Covey, big rocks first guy. Yes. So yeah, that, that. that refers to just doing the, the, the most important projects rather than the tasks. Yeah. Uh, I, I've... I think those are are big habits for me. Yeah, I think you know when I write, I definitely spend the first hour of the day writing. I don't. Yeah. I'm not always writing. I, I'm not writing currently. Right. But my brain. I don't know about yours, Chris, but I've got like a, I've got a decent hour in me of writing, and it's yeah. usually again between five thirty and six thirty. But that's it. I, I yeah. find after three or four hundred words, I can't. I I just can't anymore. So. If I, I like a, a business book's around 40, 50,000 words. So if I crank out, let's say 400 words in a hundred days, I got a book, you know, it's, but I got to do it every day Yeah. in that hour. And that takes just sort of carving out the noise and doing that. Um, and, and a so bunch sort of discipline, discipline and commitment for sure. Right. Like, I mean, you've done two days, you know, what swimming's yeah. like first yeah. five in the morning, whatever, like. You know, and I think I, I'm glad you raised uh, discipline because I think it's it's actually it's actually one of the superpowers of the most successful entrepreneurs I know. Yeah. They have discipline not only in their their work habits, they also have discipline in what they choose to do. Yeah. You know, when you get a little bit of success under your belt as an entrepreneur. The world will start bringing you opportunities, right? Yes. And I think yes. Steve Jobs, who said it's more important to say no than yeah. I can't remember what what the yeah. what the analogy is, but but I think so many of us start and the customers are worse. Customers start to say you should do like you know you've done such a good job of you know doing X for us. Can can you think about doing Y for us? Yeah. And and again, people chasing revenue. It, it can be very tempting to go outside of what you do to fulfill a customer need, right? It's yeah. like the basics of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I remember I, I did an interview with a woman named Stephanie Breedlove, just an amazing entrepreneur. She built a company to do payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay and a real small niche small of the niche, payroll yeah. space, right? And she built it up to 300 grand in revenue. It was just her and one employee. And at the time, it was becoming more difficult for her to acquire parents who had a nanny to pay. It was just, you know, 
point of diminishing returns. She was having much more difficulty finding new customers. And so she, she, you know, had conversations with people who all of whom said, well, you've just got to cross sell. Like you've got happy customers. What else do they need? Right. It's eight times. You've heard it a thousand yeah. times. It's eight times cheaper, eight times faster to cross sell your existing customer, a new product than it is to get. And so they were like, oh, well, busy parents need meal delivery services and they need lawn care and they wow. need, you know, whatever. And Stephanie had a moment and she's like, that's not why I got into this business. I got into this business to solve this one problem, right? Yeah. Payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. And she said, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna do that. She had the discipline yes. to turn all those opportunities away and say, no, what we do is find parents who have payroll for nannies. And that's what we do. Yeah. Anyways, 25 years later, she built this company up and it was doing 9 million in revenue wow. on the backs of 10,000 customers. So like a really solid growth rate, but it's not Tesla. It's not no. Google, right? No. Like it's just solid. Like you wouldn't have noticed her yes. in, in a crowd, right? Like just yeah. putting her head down, doing her work over 25 years, built it to 9 million in revenue. She says, I want to sell. She goes and looks at the landscape and says, who would want to buy this company? And, and it turns out there's a company called Care.com. Do you know Care.com? No. They're like um, Angie's List. You plug in your zip okay, code, yes, your postal yes, code, and yeah. it'll give you. So they are that for babysitters. So you plug oh, wow. in your postal code, and it gives you a list of five-star rated babysitters. So if you're looking for a babysitter, you want to trust your babysitter with your kids, et cetera, it gives you a babysitter. They had 7 million subscribers. Think about that. 7 million parents who have a babysitter nanny. or a nanny to pay. Wow. Breedlove had 10,000 customers. They have 7 million. Oh my gosh. And so Breedlove says, like, why don't, why don't you buy my company? If 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's 70,000 customers. That's a company seven times our size, right? If 2%, yeah. dare to dream 5% buy, like, think about it. Anyway, she sold Breedlove Associates, this little $9 million business for $54 million. Oh my gosh. And it would never have been worth a penny if she was cross-selling what everyone everybody told else do, does. Yeah. Which is to chase revenue. You can get to a million if you just sell a meal delivery service and then you do lawn care and you do snow removal and you'll be fine. Yeah. And so that just to go back to this notion of discipline, it it, it is. I think it's underrated having the discipline to wake up at 5.30 and work on your biggest project before yeah. your kids or your spouse gets up and saying no to customers who want you to get into businesses that you have no business being in. And that yeah. is, that's discipline. I think it's totally underrated. I think it is too, John. And, and, and again, I think that's something you're really great at. Like, and I think it's, it's interesting. You're just from a, a, a he chuckled by the way, um, <laughs> he smiled uh, to our, to our leaders. Um, so, so, but like my sense and it's, it's, you're swimming in around people who are doing that, who are saying, no, let's get what we're great at. And for us, I got to tell you, I was chasing all sorts of stuff. I did this Home Depot deal. We provide painting services right across or third of the US, all across Canada. Total misfocus. We are hmm. about student leadership. That's all we're about. You know, my wife came in as CEO about a dozen years ago and gave us so much more discipline for me chasing, awesome. chasing stuff. So, so it's just that, you know, um, that knowing who you are, and just being that, right? And just being that powerfully. It's just so key. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had Brian Scudamore on the show? Uh, yes, actually, yeah. He, he actually started this year. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Brian, you know, he had the benefit of a, of a chief operating officer 
And that I think was a great yin and yang for him, right? Because yes. obviously a really bright, super ideas guy. Yes. Um, but also benefited from the discipline of having someone that would just like make sure the trains got got there yes. on time. And I think that's one of the real luxuries. And I think, you know, if you do get your business out of the starting gates and you're becoming successful, like you've got your wife, which works really well for you. If you can yeah. find somebody to be that, that other side of your brain, it, 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 yes. yeah, it allows you to be for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think, I think we, we love the strategy and the new things and the exciting things and the yeah. partnership with the home Depot all yeah. across the, I mean, like <laughs> exactly. that's part of what gets the juices yeah. flowing. Right. Yeah. And then you need the counter auger of saying, yeah, but we said we would do this and these yes. are our three commitments and this blah, blah. It's the, it's the yin and yang to your point. So if you get to a point where you can afford a really good second in command, a general manager, take it because yeah. I think that person can be a, uh, a great auger for you. Yeah. One of the other things, second last question before I last uh, ask is, is I'm, I just imagine John, I know we both did the strategic coach. What do you think about unique ability and, and unique teams? How, how have you worked with those concepts in your, in your entrepreneurial career? Yeah, I think it can be dangerous. I, look, unique ability is a is a is a strategic coach concept where it encourages you to really think deeply about what it is that you personally bring to the table. What is your unique contribution? Yeah, and I think if we spend if we go too far down that line of thinking, it leads us to build a company that's deeply dependent on us, oh, right? Okay. So if it. you're a wealth management company, as an example, and, and you have a really unique ability of diagnosing and discovering a customer's needs, and then you build an entire wealth management business to do all the other stuff, right? And yeah. that, that allow you to be the person, get the largest check, the right, the, you know, to, to, to win those clients, that can be a great lifestyle business because yeah. you do what you love yeah. and are extremely good at, and you built an infrastructure around you, but it's not a sellable asset. Good so point. in that way, the concept of unique ability and a sellable asset, I think they actually compete with one they another do. a little bit. They do. Yeah. And so I think thinking hard about your unique ability and and seeing how else you could apply those unique skills. So for a lot of entrepreneurs, not all, but a lot of entrepreneurs, they're they're good rainmakers for their business, right? Yes. They're good with customers, they're they're good influencers, they're good communicators, they're good marketers. And again, to go back to the Stephen Watkins uh, MIT example, it it may be better to take those unique skills and instead of building a business around them, applying those to the prospect of selling your business, influencing yes. your business. And so I think that's where the two concepts somewhat diverge. Although I think if Dan were here, he'd probably make a case that there's a way to kind of merge them in harmony. But I think they do in some ways conflict with one another on some level. No, I think, I think it does. And uh, I, I hear you. And, and again, I know for, for Dan, in terms of my senses about selling businesses, you know, one of the things is you sell a business, then you have a bunch of money, then you got to go start another one. And maybe you just love running the one you have and take, you know, a bunch of time off and enjoy yourself and just do what you love. That seems to be what he's doing. So, yeah, so for sure. you know, kind of maybe on the other side of the, of the river uh, and both work, but don't get stuck in the middle. <laughs> Your business, you don't like, it's not worth selling. It, it sucks. Yeah. Don't get there. The other thing I would say is there's this thing called the freedom point where when the sale of your company would garner enough liquid wealth to live for the rest of your life, to fulfill yes. any sort of aspirations you have to live, yeah. you know, et cetera. 
And I think when you reach that point in your business, I think it is worth at the very least asking yourself, is now the time? Do I want to sell? Right. And that doesn't mean you should or you have to yeah. because you may get all kinds of other karmic benefits from owning a business and, and tremendous fulfillment, et cetera. But liquefying that wealth that you have in your business, making it actually liquid, it gets you on one of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It gets you that kind of the, the, the second level up where you're no longer worried about security, right? Yes. Like you're not yeah. worried about making rent where you're, yeah. you know. And, and that is an incredible feeling. You don't have to sell a business to do that, but it, but in some cases you do. And yes. it gives you a, 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 an entire level of fulfillment and security that you can go on and create another business. Yes. Um, and I think I was, I was interviewing a, a woman um, on Built Cell Radio just last week, and, and she described her business as kind of like her training wheels business, right? She yes. built it. She made a lot of mistakes. She sold it. But she's going to take all that information into the next business. Yeah, and that's a great luxury. you know. So I, again, I think, I'm not sure how I got onto that diatribe. No, but, it's okay. Uh, no, well, it was very, very, I, everything you've offered, great value today, John. And I appreciate, again, I've run way over time. I appreciate uh, the, uh, your generosity. Final question. When you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind? <sighs> Somebody who's a good translator. I think we spent too much time telling kids to do STEM, STEM uh, yes. degrees. You got it. You know, you got to you got to do science and technology, and you got to learn Mandarin, and you've got to be a, an incredible technologist. And 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 I think that's there's definitely a role for like deep technology expertise. It, that's going to be an incredible uh, asset, and there is going to be a layer of individuals who find a way to bridge between the technology and the people who consume the technology. Sure. And I think that is going to be a very interesting place to be. Enough knowledge of the technology that you can play that role of interpreter, yeah. yet also the creative skills and agility to to interpret the technology for the end consumer, which again, I don't think spending your entire life in STEM type subjects gives you, right? Because sure. if you're learning math and science from grade four all the way through, and you're getting a, a math degree from Waterloo, my sister's got a math degree from Waterloo. So I say it with all degree of, of pride in her. And reference and reverence. Yeah. yeah. But it does start to shut down that part of your brain that thinks about things laterally, right? It's yes. when everything is a zero or a one. And so I think being in, in between those two worlds, not just being an artsy, fartsy, can't you know? Yes, can't read a balance sheet type person. At the same time, the STEM person, I think, just STEM also has trouble relating. So I think the middle ground is an interesting place to play. Awesome, awesome. And so when I think of a leader of tomorrow, it's it's someone who can play that 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 bridge, that translating role. Uh, so that's what I would say. Well, uh, John, thank you so much. Uh, best of luck with your your next book. Best of luck with all you're creating in the world. And uh, and again, um, thanks thanks for your time today. It's fun, Chris. Okay, cheers. You have a great day. You're really yeah, good at this podcast thing. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Well, we'll do it again. Hey, leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye now. 
you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.